Welcome back, goblins. I'm your host, Jason, and you are listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Tonight we are looking at The Old Magic of Christmas by Linda Radish, and let me tell you, it's going to get weird. We associate this time of year with well-wishing and good cheer, but it wasn't always this way. In fact, for most of human history, it was quite terrifying. If you thought Krampus was creepy, wait until you hear about the Yule Lads, 13 troll children who terrorize Icelandic families, the Mary Lude, a haunting alcoholic ghost horse, or the Nisa from Jutland, who are akin to evil garden gnomes. Heck, there's even Christmas werewolves and vampires. But first, let's look at a staple of Christmas, elves. Elves have always been a part of the season, if not Christmas specifically. In medieval Sweden, there was a mysterious midwinter festival known as the Alphablot. The details are vague about the actual practices that took place, because the only record we have comes from a traveling bard named Sigvat, an Icelander visiting the king of Sweden in 1017. As the story goes, Sigvat was en route to the king's hall when the sun began to set. Knowing he wouldn't make it to his destination before nightfall, he sought shelter at a local farmstead. At the time, it would have been a great privilege to host a bard for the night. Imagine not having radio or television, and suddenly a professional musician shows up on your doorstep. The closest homestead was in an area called Hove. Sigvat knocked on the door, and eventually an impatient woman answered. When asked about shelter, the woman, even more impatient, tells Sigvat that he shouldn't know what was going on. I can't allow you to cross the threshold during the alpha blot, she explains though she never really explains why it was part of the observance of this festival. Needless to say, Sigvat was just as confused as you and I. He continued his journey, stopping at each homestead along the way, and each time he was denied. It's the Alpha Blot! I can't let you in! Eventually he realizes that he's not going to find shelter for the night, so he pressed onwards to get to his destination the Hall of Jarl Ragnvald, where he relates his tale. It's only through a single account that we have any knowledge of this festival. Why would he be denied hospitality during the Alpha Blot? There are several possible explanations. The first is that it was part of the ceremony in which the household and all the occupants were consecrated, and to allow outsiders to enter would destroy the consecration. Alternatively, it could also be that on this night in particular, the Alfar walked the earth, and it was more difficult to tell who was and was not an elf. Just imagine that you're in the midst of a ceremony that protects your homestead from hostile spirits, and suddenly, there's a knock at your door. You open it, and you see a host of people dressed almost like you, but not quite. The cut and custom of dress in Iceland was similar to, but not identical to that of the mainland. You've never really seen these men before, and their only request is to come into your home, after dark, on the night of the Alpha Blot. How could you be sure that these were really even men? What are the Alfar, though? Originally, the Alfar were subterranean elves who were generally human size but had dark skin and light hair. Their description is actually very similar to that of the drow in Dungeons and Dragons, 
but without the weird spider worship. Eventually, they were adopted into a wider mythological tradition where their origins were Christianized. Initially, they were a race of entities that existed alongside the Aesir and Vanir, tribes of Norse gods, though the entrance to their halls were found within burial mounds similar to the She of Irish legend. With the onset of Christianity, it was said that the Alfar were angels who remained neutral during Lucifer's rebellion against heaven. They refused to rebel, but they also refused to fight against their kin. As punishment, they were exiled to Earth rather than Hell. Snorri Sturluson, a medieval Icelandic historian and folklorist, divided the Alfar into two categories, the Light Elves and the Dark Elves. The Light Elves live in Alfheim, or Elfholm, which seems to be a separate realm like Midgard, Jotunheim, or Valhalla, and they were described as being as fair as the sun to gaze upon. The Dark Elves were blacker than pitch and lived beneath the earth in darkness. Snorri was writing all of this well after the Christianization of Iceland, so it seems that he was attempting to reconcile the dualistic nature of the Alfar with the new religion. This description of the Alfar sounds quite a bit like the concepts of angels and demons of the medieval world. As a quick aside, before we move on, J.R.R. Tolkien was heavily influenced by medieval literature, even naming characters after mythological figures. In this instance, Gandalf was historically referenced as being the king of the Alfar in the 9th century, and his name translates directly to Elf with a Staff. Beyond elves knocking at your door, there are plenty of other visitors this time of year. Iceland has a bevy of creatures haunting homesteads in the midwinter. It all begins with Grilla, the haggard giant witch. She likes the taste of freshly cooked children, and has been known to go door to door begging parents for their disobedient children. Somehow, she managed to marry three times, her final husband being Lepaluthi, a rather lazy troll. While these two were creepy, it was their children that made the family infamous. Now known as the Yule Lads, these troll children creep about homesteads in the winter. Each is named for their favorite form of misdeed or their unique appearance. With names such as Stubby, Spoon Licker, and Window Peeper, it's easy to see why they became both beloved and feared spirits of the land. As if a monstrous family were not enough, they also had a pet cat. A normal cat isn't enough for a family of giants and trolls, though. No, this was a cat the size of a small house. He is best known for his strange eating habits. He preyed upon anyone who was not wearing new clothes by Christmas. While it has been suggested that it was a tactic used by parents to get their children to process wool quicker in the fall, I like to think that it was simply easier for the cat to track down smelly children. Based on the legends, Iceland sounds like a horrifying place, but still, people fled the mainland to find homes there. What could possibly be so bad that they would tolerate cannibal trolls? The answer? Gnomes. Yes, gnomes. Known by various names such as the Nissa, Tontu, or Tomten, gnomes are household spirits that follow the eldest son of a family. This description is a bit deceptive, though. They don't strictly reside within the home. 
For example, the Nyssa is a farm gnome that assists with chores, though refuses to chop wood or spin wool on Thursdays, in observance of Thor's day. These spirits are the source of the popular depiction of garden gnomes. They are about the size of a toddler, have long gray beards, and a tall pointed red cap. They often wear a tunic and trousers and a tiny pair of buckled shoes. Their clothing isn't just utilitarian, though. Their caps allow them to turn invisible, and their shoes allow them to traverse any terrain at great speeds. The Nyssa prefers to work at night, under the light of his blue flame lantern. He doesn't like to be watched, though, and if he notices someone spying on him, he will leave the farm, never to return. One of his favorite chores is caring for horses, especially black horses, whom he gives extra attention to. In return for his service, he likes offerings of porridge with butter, as well as clothing, though only work clothes. If you give him something too fancy, he takes it as an insult, and will also leave. He is a working gnome, after all. Ultimately, the Nyssa don't sound too bad. The gnomes from Jutland, however, are jerks. They absolutely hate children. In fact, they carry switches everywhere they go, just in case they run into one. They do like animals, though, with the exception of dogs, whom they like to torment. Similar to the Nyssa, they are fond of caring for livestock. The downside is that they will steal from neighboring farms to make sure that their animals are well cared for. When their work is done, they reside in dark, warm places, such as the eaves of the roof above the fireplace. In payment, they request something a bit more involved. They like fancy rice pudding, but it has to be served in a wooden bowl with a wooden spoon, because they like to pretend that despite their refined palate, they truly are humble creatures. Gnomes known as Tomton seem to fall somewhere between the previous two. They are land spirits, and their name is derived from the word for the tightly packed floors found in rural homes. They are short, with oversized hands and feet. Both their hat and their beard are so long that they drag the ground when they walk. They generally do household and farm chores, usually when no one is looking. They enjoy payment of porridge with butter and a little honey if you have it. What makes them unique is their association with winter gifting traditions. Their favorite gifts to receive are gray homespun cloth, a pinch of tobacco, and a spade full of clay, which they use to make their own pipe. If you find yourself in the company of a Tomton, you will certainly want to leave them gifts, because their most noted trait is that they like to give gifts in return. Specifically, they have taken over the gift-giving duties of the Yulebok, or Yule Goat. Normally, when we think of animals associated with Christmas, we think of reindeer. Reindeer herders, known as the Sami, are the most likely source for the description of Santa's sleigh. But few people remember the Yule Goat. Believe it or not, the Yule Goat was once associated with Thor, who had two magical goat companions named Tooth Nasher and Tooth Grinder. But the tradition is much, much older. So old, in fact, that much of the original meaning is lost and what remains is largely iconography. Nevertheless, the Yule Goat travels from home to home, leaving gifts for good children. In return, the children would fill one of their shoes full of barley and leave it hidden beneath their bed for the goat. 
That is certainly an odd place to leave a shoe full of grain, but that's how the goat likes it, so who am I to question it? As time progressed, the Yule goat was depicted as being accompanied by Tomten, and eventually the Tomten would deliver gifts alone, though they would always, in some way, symbolically involve the goat. Oftentimes, this was an effigy made from bundled straw. These straw goats are a seasonal favorite in Scandinavian countries today and are often seen in Christmas markets. Goats and reindeer are not the only animals associated with winter festivities. The Yule boar is a symbol of fortune and probably originates with Gullenbursti, the golden boar who accompanies the Norse god Freyr. Of course, no one would ever dream of eating the Yule goat, while the Yule boar often becomes a tasty treat for the family. In Wales, the animal most associated with Yule is the horse. Sort of. More like a ghost horse. This creature is called the Merilude. Each village would have their own version of this entity, and each year someone would don the costume of the Merilude and go door to door. The costume consists of a bleached horse skull with a hinged jaw, so the person could make it talk, and eyes made from the bottoms of colored glass bottles. The skull would be held high on a pole, and the person portraying the Mary Lude would then be hidden beneath a white sheet that extends from the base of the skull. Here's where it gets even more weird. The Mary Lude goes door-to-door singing songs until the homeowner comes out. They are then challenged to the ghostly equivalent of a rap battle. If the Mary Lude is victorious, the homeowner must give him alcohol, and then follow him to the next house, where the event happens again and again but with an ever-increasing audience size. The trick is that homeowners who lose later not only have to get the Mary Lude drunk, but they have to provide alcohol to all the followers as well. So if you're going to lose, lose early. This isn't the first instance of the concept of win-or-join type contests in the UK around wintertime. A tradition brought to the island nation by the Saxons was the specter known as the Grimm. This one-eyed horseman wore only black clothing and hunted astride a coal-black steed on the darkest night of the year. His approach was heralded by the sound of a hunting horn and the baying of hounds. Anyone who could not hide would be turned into a hound and forced to join his hunting party for the night. What is more terrifying is that he sometimes hunted while completely invisible. Victims would report hearing the sounds of thundering hooves, dozens of pawed feet, and the drawn-out howls of hunting dogs approach and then depart, not once ever seeing the source. There were measures you could take to improve your chances of avoiding him, though. The easiest was to be indoors when the sun set, since he only hunted at night. Apparently, out of sight, out of mind, works against the grim. If you are caught outside when he draws near, legend says that you can lie face down in a ditch to avoid his ire. Just don't look up. Otherwise, you are destined to become a hound. Finally, the Grimm has a very specific way that he enters our world. He must use a barn with doors opposite each other, which have both been left open that night. When the sun sets, he will burst forth from the barn and return as the sun rises. That means one of the easiest ways to prevent the Grimm is simply to close your barn door at night. Grimm was first recorded in the written record in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, written in the late 800s AD. Since then, he has evolved, 
often depicted as wearing a closed-faced helmet with expansive stag antlers and using the name Hearn the Hunter. First mentioned in writing by William Shakespeare, Hearn the Hunter seems to be an amalgamation of the Grimm and pre-Christian antlered deities such as Cernunos. No longer just hunting wayward travelers, Hearn stalks sinners, giving them the option of joining him as a hound or being his quarry. Throughout Europe, there are various magical figures who travel from door to door, doling out gifts or punishment. They can range from witches, to monks, to incarnations of Old Man Winter. But in Romania, things are a bit stranger. First, you have to survive the Vampire Fight Club. Yes, you heard that correctly. Vampire Fight Club. It takes place at sundown on St. Andrew's Eve, November 29th for those who are interested, at this time, the vampires not only rise from their grave, but they bring their entire coffin with them, carried above their heads as if they were fancy canoes. They would then make a circuit around their former homes before going to the closest crossroads, where they had a last-man-standing-style brawl until dawn. They would then grab their coffin and return to the graveyard. For the rest of the year, they would do normal vampire things, but, as St. Andrew's Eve approaches, they once again prepare for another vampire melee. With the Vampire Fight Club concluded, the villagers had roughly a month before they had to worry about the next threat, baby werewolves. You see, in Romania, your actions throughout the year could affect your family during Christmas. If you got a bit frisky in March, you run the risk of your child being born during the 12 days of Christmas. For most people, this just results in the aggravation of trying to find gifts for both Christmas and a birthday. But not in Romania. If your child is born during this time, you'll have to keep a close eye on them as they grow older because they run the very serious risk of becoming a werewolf. There's really no legend or explanation for why this happens. I guess it's just one of those unpleasant realities of living in the Carpathian Mountains. Between gangs of vampires beating the crap out of each other and werewolf babies, I'd say Romania takes the title for the worst place to be at Christmas time. These stories are only part of what is in the old magic of Christmas. You'll find plenty more, along with crafts and recipes, including one for fancy rice pudding so you can keep your evil gnomes at bay. I have read this book once a year since I purchased it in 2016 and I am continuously amazed by the sheer volume of information that is packed within its 281 pages. Even if you're like me and you only pick it up when December rolls around, it's certainly worth the read. So whether your holiday involves drunken caroling with a ghost horse, wearing new clothes to prevent being devoured, or simply lying face down in a ditch to avoid becoming a dog, I hope it was a memorable one. As always, I posted a link to the book in the show notes. Esoteric Book Club is also on Patreon. There are several different tiers with various rewards, such as voting rights and exclusive articles, with a few other reward ideas in the works. Even at the lowest tier, you're not just a goblin anymore. You're a loyal goblin. Some, such as Samantha Shaver, have even reached the level of Elemental, which gets her mentioned by name during each show. If you'd like to help support further podcast, please leave a donation. 
Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and at esotericbookclub.org. If you enjoy the show, please like, share, and leave a review. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. Their music can be found at bandcamp.com and at wearehellojune.com. Until next time, remember, stay safe, stay warm, and stay weird. I'm the Mary Lude, dropping sick beats. Don't pay attention to the man beneath the sheets. Here to take your booze I've been practicing for weeks. Gonna get fly by drinking with the freaks.